your Bible to James chapter 4. We're continuing our look through the book of James, uh, the epistle that was written by Jesus' half-brother, two Jewish Christians spread out throughout the Roman Empire. And I mentioned this last week, every week we've kind of had this church and then a P word that really summarizes what, uh, that sounded weird, a P word, but uh, a word that summarizes, begins with the letter P, uh, summarizes basically the, gen, the, the general message of the sermon and the message of the scripture. This week is not an easy one for us. In fact, a lot of people probably wish James chapter 4 just was ripped out of their Bible. It's the church prideful. This week I would challenge you to take a moment and look around at those around you. Now the whole theme of the series is we're together. James was writing to the church that they might conduct themselves as Christians together to be the church. Some of you may look around this morning and see people and say, I love the idea of being together, just not with them. It happens. It's part of it, right? That's part of who we are as people. Being together is part of being the church. In the new member class this morning, I said, you know, whenever we lose a member or, or we have to uh, have church discipline for a member and things like that as the pastor, I, I don't like that. I don't enjoy that because it's like an amputation. It's like a surgery at times. Hard sermons are not fun. I don't get a, I, I don't get a lot of joy out of preaching hard texts. A while back, somebody suggested I I preached like I was angry. I don't think I've ever really preached like I was angry, but this message is one that gets my proverbial dander up. It's it's one of those topics that we have to address within the church, and it's our own pride. And if we don't want to address it, it just festers like a wound, and it becomes an infection in the body, and it becomes a real harder issue to tackle at a later time. So if you will... Read with me, beginning in verse 1. James writes, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble Be subject, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and cry. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not slander one another, brothers. He who slanders a brother or judges his brother slanders the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge 
your neighbor. Father God, this morning I pray that this is not the word of Jeff, this is the word of God. I pray that your scripture penetrate our hearts and as I have studied and exegeted and faithful to expose what you are saying, Father, I pray that it be heard, understood, and acted upon. Lord, we love you. We serve you and you alone. May your word shout to us today where we need it, whisper to us where we need it, and speak to us how we need it. Lord, we ask this in the name of our risen Savior. Amen. Like I said, this isn't a fun text, is it? It's not really one you're going to go to on those rainy nights and say, Lord, help me know how to behave, and then open this. You're going to, you know, you, you know that little trick some people do? They, they use their Bible like an Ouija board, and they just thumb through it, and oh, that's what God's saying to me. This is one of those passages, if you put your finger there, um, be miserable, mourn, and cry. You know, I'm going to try again, <laughs> right? That's what people would typically do. But the truth is, if we want to come together, we need to get this message. If we want to be a church that moves together, that acts together, that loves together, and does all the things we've seen previously together, we have to get this passage. Each of us must overcome our own personal pride. From the pastor up, we must overcome personal pride. That's what James is really getting at in this text. Pride causes us to do many things that are sinful. But it is a toxin in the church, a toxic waste that gets dumped into it. It's the source of so many problems. Wanting things our way, my way, this way, that way. And so it causes us to fight as we seek to pleasure ourselves is what James says. The church that does not get along, that is the antithesis of what the church is supposed to be. The church that has quarrels and cliques and arguments and divisions. That's really nothing new though. I mean, after all, James is the first book of the New Testament era that's been written and, and he's addressing this very thing. We even see among the disciples, if you really carefully read the Gospel of John and Mark, which is pretty much Peter's version of the Gospel account, if you read both of those closely, and I mentioned it in our Mark study, you see even the disciples didn't get along. John makes little digs at Peter at times. Peter does the same thing. Peter says, you know, Peter and Andrew got up and left their boats and their nets, but, you know, John and James, they got up and left their father and his servants well, why would he think like that? Why would he even mention that? Well, you remember, they were both fishermen. They were competitors at one point. And now they're disciples together. Well, I wonder why it is when they're on their way to Jerusalem, the disciples start to argue over who's better, who's greater in the kingdom, right? It's their pride. And these are men, not like men we see today. And in fact, one person I heard said, if a man-eating lion got loose in America, it'd starve to death. These were manly men. And they didn't always get along. So James is writing this portion of his epistle because quarrels and problems within the church had already become an issue. In the 1600s, there was a Jewish philosopher. His name was Baruch, Espinoza, or sorry, Baruch Spinoza. Doesn't sound like a very Jewish name, but I promise he was. He was Portuguese Jewish. 
He wrote this in the 1600s. I have often wondered that persons who make boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred that this, this, rather than the virtues which they profess, is the readiest criteria of their faith. Isn't it interesting how the world watches how the church gets along? How the Christian gets along with the Christian. It was Jesus himself who told us, by this all will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Now we don't know the exact specifics of the issues James is addressing here. We don't know exactly what the quarrels and the problems and the root of it all was, but we know they existed and we know their source, the pride of the individuals belonging to the church. And I think he outlines very well here how to overcome such pride. The first thing we have to do is recognize it. Somebody has to come along and point it out to us sometimes, but we have to recognize it. And then we have to resist it if we are to truly repent of it, to turn from it. So few churches do this. That's why so many churches die. In fact, I was listening to the Influence podcast, the Assemblies of God podcast, not that long ago, and Doug Clay was saying that while we have over 12,000 Assembly of God churches in the United States, every year we plant about 300 churches and we close about 300 churches. Now, sometimes we think we're advancing. Really, we're struggling to keep our head above water in some places. Why is that? Because of a little thing that becomes a big problem. It's called pride. We, if we are to be together, must overcome our personal prides. And the first step is to recognize. Read again in verse one. You know what? We'll skip reading it again. He starts, he says, what is the source? What is the source? Now, James does this. He's done this a couple of other times. He begins by asking a question. And he did it in chapter 2, verse 14, and chapter 3, verse 13. He's changing directions. He says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? He says this because he wants the reader to pause for just a second and think about these things. He's not asking this as a rhetorical question. He's going to answer it, yes. But he wants you to stop and think. When there are problems within the church, what's the source? Where does it stem from? We read this today and we say, well, what church doesn't have problems? What church doesn't have little arguments and quarrels and problems like that? Pastor Jeff A while back, I mentioned that while I was in Bible college, I was filling pulpits around the area of Ellendale and came into a church one Sunday morning and two men were yelling at each other. They were very upset. I don't know, I don't remember what it was about, but I stood there like an innocent bystander as these two guys had it out. And when it was over, they just walked away from each other and a little old lady, I'll never forget, she says, oh, they just fight like brothers. And it's cute when they're three It's funny when they're teenagers, but it's a shame when they're supposed to be mature Christians. We are to be brothers in Christ, and I know Proverbs says, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, and there will be heat. 
There will be friction as things are sharpened. In fact, there will be things chipped away as the edge becomes sharper, finer. That's what happens. But that is not what James is referencing here. He's not talking about arguments that lead to growth. He's not talking about calling out the false teachers. He's not talking about stimulating one another or trying to disciple one another and casting off sin. He says there are quarrels and conflicts. In the Greek, it's polemai chai machai. Battles and fights is how we might read it. Open clashes, wars, actual wars between groups of believers. That's what's happening in the church in James's day. This is more than just, you know, I really, pa- I really prefer when pastor preaches from the ESV. Well, I prefer when he preaches from the LSB. I like the NASB line and I like the CSB and things. It's more than that. It's more than I don't like the color of carpet they picked for the sanctuary. This is deeper than all of that. This is blatantly fighting against God's design for the church. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Paul told the Philippian church, he said, only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel. When he writes to the Corinthian church the second time, he says to him, I'm afraid. This is the Apostle Paul who'd get beaten for being a Christian and wasn't afraid of those things, wasn't afraid of persecution. But he starts out, he says, I'm afraid. Not afraid of that. Afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and you may find me to not be what you wish. Perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. That's what he was afraid he'd find in the churches because I'm sure he'd seen it in other churches. Now some suggest when James is writing this that this is what happens when you have the tares coming in amongst the wheat, when you have goats who want to pin up with the sheep, that it's that kind of conflict. And maybe there's some truth to that, but James doesn't really say that. And I I think maybe that might be reading a little bit too much more into the text than we should. James is talking to Christians. James is talking to people who claim their life has been changed by Christ And he's saying the source of your pleasures are what's waging war. Pleasures is the Greek word hedonin. It's where we get the English word hedonism. It means our unsatisfied desires. Putting our wants first. Now this is why that's interesting. Often we we read this and we we think it's James referring, when he talks about the, the members here, we think he's referring to, you know, just the parts of the body, the parts of the, like, like it's our own, our own fleshly wants within our own bodies that are driving us, like we think with our stomach or other parts of our body type of thing, that's not what he's really saying. When he says members, the wording there is very clear. It's the Greek word melisin, and he means the individual members of the church. Each person wants what they want, and they put that above the needs of the church. The problems you're, you're having is, he's basically saying, all these fights is because those of you who claim to be Christians are not acting like it. 
You're not acting like someone who's satisfied in Christ, someone who wants to truly get their way first. It's childish. He's not saying they aren't Christian necessarily. He's simply saying they're immature Christians or fleshly Christians at best. He says, you lust and do not have, so you murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Is this the conduct of someone who is satisfied in Christ? Is this a person content in the Holy Spirit? No. The word he uses for lust is not necessarily one that would lead to extramarital activity, but it's simply an intense desire, a longing for something that you don't have. When he says envy, he's talking about wanting something that you shouldn't have because it already belongs to somebody else. When they don't get these things, they fight, and they're even willing to commit murder to take it. This is more than just character assassination. This is more than just putting somebody down or being hateful. This is legitimately willing to take another person's life. Premeditated killing. That's what he's referring to. You might read that. You might hear that and say, Oh, well, thank you, Pastor. We've not gone that far. Not yet. Not yet. Sinful desire, envy, lust, they quickly will turn to hate. And hate has a way of evolving into something far worse. First John 3.15 says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has, in, has eternal life abiding in him. When I was a probation officer, when I first started out, my partner was a guy named James. James was black, I was white, so they sent us to all areas of the town, all areas of the city. We could get along with everybody. It was, it was perfect matching and our personalities complemented one another very well in the field. There were times he'd really get into a heated debate or, or problem, and I could talk us out of it and vice versa. But I remember the first time we went to a house, and we heard this a lot, probably once a week by the time it was over. We'd go to a house, and a kid would be in trouble. He'd be on the electronic monitoring or, or home confinement, and he'd be confined to his home. And the parent would say, you know, I feel like I've, I'm in trouble. I feel like I'm the one being punished here. I have you guys showing up at my house 8 a.m. on a Saturday, and the whole neighborhood sees it. I feel like I'm being punished. I've never committed a crime. I've never been arrested. I've never done this. I've never done that. And I will never forget James's response every time, that first time, the first few times I heard it. He'd always say these two words, not yet. You haven't got arrested yet. You just haven't got caught yet. I thought, man, he can say that, I can't. When all the truth is, by the time it was over, I'd say it too. Because it was a fact. It was very much a fact of the neighborhoods and the places we'd go. And we can say that now about ourselves as well. Because if sin is left unchecked, and pride is left to fester, if these things are not addressed, it's only a matter of time until we do far worse. When our sinful desires are not controlled, before long they control us. And whether we like to admit it or not, we will fight to the death to have our way and have those needs or wants fulfilled. A person enslaved to this lust, this envy, they don't want what truly satisfies, so they don't ask for it. He, James says, you do not have because you do not ask. This gets twisted in some circles. But we have to understand this. 
You see, the believer should always want true joy, true peace, true hope, true meaning, true fulfillment, and that only comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ. The immature Christian who thinks that God is his genie or cosmic slot machine or something like that, they are not willing to ask for these things on Christ's terms, but they'll try to satisfy them and fulfill them on their own terms. Their selfish desires must be fulfilled. And so what do they do when they're a part of the church? They lash out, they fight, they battle, they refuse to submit to Christ or the authority that he's placed in in the church and they refuse to depend upon Christ alone. James goes on, he says, you ask and do not receive. God refuses to answer the prayers of those who are selfishly ambitious, who love pleasure, who desire honor above others, who want power, they want riches. God responds to the prayers of the righteous though, Psalm 34, 15, the eyes of Yahweh are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry for help. Psalm 66 says, if, if I see wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear, but certainly God has heard. He has given heed to the voice of my prayer. We cannot expect God to answer prayers birthed from selfish desires, from prideful wants. When Jesus tells his disciples how to pray, he specifically instructs them to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are to pray God's will be done. Not mine, not yours. Our will should be aligned with his will or we're gonna have problems in his church. It is God's revealed will, what we know he wants, as Paul instructs us to know In Ephesians 5.17, this means we want to please God as he has revealed his will to us through his word. His will is perfectly experienced in heaven and we want that will to happen on earth as Christ tells us to pray that it will be experienced in the fulfillment of his kingdom when Christ himself returns in power and in glory. But if we try to wield God like a weapon or like I said, a genie or slot machine. All we're doing is trying to establish our own earthly kingdom, our own kingdom. Forget it. We're asking with the wrong motives. He's not going to help that. We're being selfish. We want to satisfy our own pleasures. James calls those who do this adulteresses. They're committing harlotry, just as Israel had done multiple times in the Old Testament. They're seeking to pleasure themselves. Paul writes in Romans 1, he says, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. They're trying to appease that which is worldly, to befriend that which God has said, stay away from. You're to oppose it. And now, in doing that, in befriending those things, we make ourselves enemies of God. He says friendship with the world is hostility toward God. That includes going to a gay wedding and taking a gift. That was a big controversy a few weeks back. We do not want to set ourselves up as enemies of God, but when we we are fighting to carve out our own wants, our own selfish desires, our own needs, our own kingdom is what's being built. And we cannot be a part of Christ's kingdom if we are living and hoping to maintain ours. We submit what we've built, we submit our lives, we submit our homes, our work, our thoughts, our very hearts to Christ Jesus when we call ourselves Christian, when we become Christian. When we submit to him, when we place our faith in him, 
We're saying we no longer live for our kingdom. I no longer live for my kingdom. I don't want what I will. I want his will. If we don't do that, we're going to find ourselves fighting against God. I've said this recently, but I'm not the final authority in this church. Now, yes, when it comes to programs and scheduling and things like that, the buck stops at the pastor's desk, yes, sure. But I cannot be the final authority of this church because it's not my church. It's Christ's. It's not your church. It's Christ's. And if we try to make it our church, it's going to be a problem. And we have a constitution and a policy manual. We'll talk about that later in our business meeting. But what really governs this church is the word of God that points us to Christ. My job as your pastor is to hear the word of God, study the word of God, speak the word of God to you on a Sunday morning or through the week at all times that you hear, study the word of God and go and speak the word of God to the world around you. That's what Paul means by equipping the saints. But if I preach on a Sunday morning so as to build my kingdom, if I come up here and do a stand-up comedy routine, you might leave church going, man, that was a lot of fun, that was good, but you didn't grow closer to Christ. If I do something like that, I'm no longer pastoring or preaching to build Christ's church. I'd be pastoring and preaching to build Jeff's. And if you only come to church wanting to hear what you want to hear to help build yourself up, to get you fired up, then you're just listening for what you want to build your kingdom up. You're not placing Christ at the height he ought to be. You understand so many problems within the church occur because we forget who God is. And in our pride, we try to take his place. We have to overcome our personal pride. And we start doing that by recognizing it, but then we have to resist it. One of the fruit of the spirits, one of the, one of the fruits of the spirit that gets overlooked is self-control. But James goes on, and if you note in verse five, he says, or do you think? James wants them to be actively thinking as they are reading this, as they are hearing these words. The word think, by the way, comes from the Greek word dikeo, and it means to suppose, or do you prefer? He's kind of having a conversation here. Well, do you, do you think that, that this is okay? Do you think this is right? Do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? Do you think the scripture is all irrelevant at this point? I've heard some say, we don't really need to follow the Old Testament. Pastor Jeff, you don't need to preach from the Old Testament because it's irrelevant now. That's not true. But they would prefer that, that it was speaking to no purpose. Pastor Tom Buck says it this way. He says, it would be far more honest if certain people would simply say they don't agree with what the Bible says instead of trying to make it say something it doesn't say. In a sense, that's what's happening in these churches that James is writing to. They're invalidating the scripture by their actions. James is, he's not quoting here when he says his, he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. He's not quoting scripture. He's paraphrasing the Old Testament. That's what he's doing. God is jealous. He's a jealous God. He's jealous for what belongs to him. Someone says, well, I don't like that God's jealous. Okay, well, do you get jealous? Is it wrong for you to be jealous if your wife is talking with another man or your husband is talking with another woman and you don't get a little bit of jealous with that? 
You probably have an unhealthy marriage if that's the case. But it's okay to be jealous if that's the situation. And God is jealous because we are performing harlotry, like he said. James is writing to Christians, to believers, believers who have the Holy Spirit indwelling within them. They belong to God. Paul makes this very clear. He says, do you not know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You understand, when you became a Christian, you can say, my body, my life, it does not any longer belong to me. It is his. And it's because his spirit now resides within me. Do you believe that? Do you believe that about yourself today? Pride tempts us to be about ourselves, to be about our desires, to be about our wants. Scripture tells us the complete opposite. We're not to be about those things. We're to be about God's desires, God's will, God's wants. We don't like that. Even after we've submitted our lives to Christ, oftentimes after we've received his grace, believed, and with tears in our eyes pouring down our cheeks, we've said, God, I give you my life, but not that part. My will be done, not thy will be done. We'll even twist scripture to do this at times. I've heard many do this. For example, Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in Yahweh and he will give you the desires of your heart. And there are people who will preach that. Oh, if you delight yourself in God, he's gonna give you the desires of your heart. Just a blank check, right? He's just gonna give you the, everything you really want. No, absolutely not. When we understand that verse, we understand he's going to give us new desires for our new heart because we have become a new creation and now our desires are his desires for us. But that doesn't sell. That doesn't put butts in seats, right? People don't like to hear that. So we will feed on the things that tell us how good we are without God. God's so in love with you because you're just awesome. He's just, I heard a preacher say this, and I just, I rolled my eyes so hard I gave myself a migraine. He's just revealing who you've been all along. Uh, unless that comes with the conviction of all my sin, you're wrong. That's not what the gospel is. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is that Christ died to free me from the quote-unquote awesomeness I was. To free me from the penalty and the power of sin. And if we truly delight in that truth, and who Jesus is, he replaces all the sinful things with better things, his things. But that doesn't seem to sell anymore because people want what they want, saved or no. And this is what's tearing the churches James is writing to apart. It's what tears many churches apart today. James goes on, he says, but he gives a greater grace, and this is our only hope, that God's grace snap us out of it. That in our own spiritual darkness, God's grace rescues us from our own propensity to do evil. That in his mercy, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Though he scoffs at the scoffers, Psalms 334 tells us, he gives grace to the humble. The humble is not a special type of Christian. The humble is what all Christians should be, all believers. 
Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the lowly, meaning the humble, the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. When God brings our pride to our attention, we ought to recognize it and resist its desires and submit to what God desires. Look again in verse seven there. It says, be subject therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You remember youth rallies? People used to have youth rallies where you'd load up all of you sweaty teenagers stinking in a van and you'd drive for about 45 minutes to some other church, some other congregation a, a little ways away and, and you'd have road games and your youth pastor would get frustrated and pull over and say, guys, don't make me turn this van around. That might have been my youth group. But we used to have youth rallies and there for a while, almost every youth rally I would go to, it seemed like, there was some guy in a, in a camouflage jacket, different guys shopping at the same military surplus store, I guess. But they would always preach the same thing. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. I mean, how many of you have heard sermons on just that phrase? I'm the only guy. Okay, you didn't go to youth rallies in the 90s. That's all right. There's the first part we have to, we always seem to gloss over. Be subject, therefore, to God. We so badly want to skip over that sometimes and just beat the devil to death. But it doesn't happen if we don't submit and be subject to God. We try to white knuckle it through our sin. That old devil's not going to get me this time. I'm going to leave my phone and my computer behind. I'm going to go live in a cave and fast for 40 days. And when it's over, we're left with frustration and discouragement and defeat because we lose the battle trying to fight it on our own. The tempter is relentless and his minions do not know the human rules for war. We think we can win foolishly when we try to do it on our own. We have to be subject to the one who crushed the serpent's head if we ever want to have victory. And that's simply to, to submit to him, to be subject to God really just means to confess our sins before him to forsake even our hidden sins. In 1 Samuel, we see an example of this in the life of Saul. Hack Agag to pieces. Don't leave it for somebody else. Isaiah 55, 7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to Yahweh and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. If you want to resist sin, confess your sin. Confess to God, I'm, I'm being tempted, I'm struggling with this. And then whenever you've done that, go the extra mile and protect yourself from what lures you into it. Know your, know your triggers, right, is what we'd say today. Job said it differently, Job 31.1, I've cut a covenant with my eyes, how then could I gaze at a virgin? He said, I won't even look at a woman who might cause me to think a lustful thought. And then feed on the word. Feed on the word of God. The psalmist writes, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Paul tells the Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing even one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. It's almost like we can get into the word together. And when we're able to do that, we're able to think on righteous things 
Philippians 4 eight says, finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's dignified, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, consider or think upon these things. That's, that's how we submit ourselves to God. We think about godly things. We think about his word. We, we think about what may lead us into sin, and we avoid those things. So we submit to his word. We hide it in our heart. And we follow what he tells us to do. And then and only then do we have the power to resist the devil and his wicked schemes. And the very next thing, he tells us again, draw near to God. How do I do that? By reading his word, by knowing what he has said. My wife's in here, so she's gonna pull out a special notebook where she keeps things in to throw in my face later. But if you wanna have a healthy marriage, what do you do? You communicate, Right? Some of you are sitting there like, I don't know where he's going with this and I don't want to get in trouble with him. But you communicate. You listen to one another, right? You're not even listening is the weirdest way Jen starts some of her conversations. Some of you will get that later. But if you love your wife, you love your husband, you listen to their words. You want to draw near to God? You want to love God? Listen to his word. Get into his word and watch as he draws near to you in your prayer time and your struggles and your times of weakness. James tells us, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. This was so popular just a few years ago. This was probably the most quoted verse in America during COVID. Wash your hands. I even have a t-shirt that says that. Wash your hands, you sinners. But James is really saying, Get rid of the sin that makes you unclean. Be purified in your thoughts, in your heart. Whatever makes you guilty of the things God condemns, remove them, purify them. Purify means to make holy. Remove the guilt, remove the undesirable traits, the things that are making you stumble and fall into the temptation that's leading you into sin. Get rid of those things. Jesus said it a little more harshly. Another verse we don't like to read. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter a life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet to be cast in eternal fire. Matthew 18, 8. You see, this is how you resist. This is the, the passion with which we must resist. And it's how we begin to repent, how to overcome our personal pride. Finally, verse 9, we see repentance beginning to be the thing, the, the step that we should follow. He says, be miserable and mourn and cry. Check. Done that, right? But no, this is different than just feeling bad. This is different than just being depressed. Be miserable, mourn, and cry. That's the first step towards repentance. Doesn't align with, but God wants you to be happy and have your best life now and all of that stuff, right? If that's your takeaway, you're missing the point. You see, be miserable, mourn, and cry. That's the state of those who are broken over their sin. These are the earmarks of a spirit truly convicted and truly repentant. Let your laughter be turned into mourning. Well, that sounds like God wants me to be sad. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. God doesn't want you to be sad. He wants you to be repentant. He wants you to mourn over sin. And when we've been caught in our sin, to confess it. James is 
catching them in this. He's pointing out sinful behaviors in the Christians and the churches, things that are destroying them from the inside out. They should not be happy about those things. Like the Corinthian church that was allowing someone to continue in sin and they were so rejoiceful over that. Paul says, what are you doing? You should put him out of the church. You should feel miserable for what you've done. Be shameful for the shame that you've brought upon the body of Christ with their infighting, with their backbiting, with their slander, with their fights, their prideful behavior. Psalm 51, 17, David writes to us about repentance. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. But verses like this, be miserable, mourn and cry. Nobody wants to go to a church that preaches that. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. But pastor, you, you don't understand. That pastor over there, he preaches easy stuff. It's like popcorn Christianity. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord? Nobody does that. I gotta look out for myself. Do you, do you hear about that church that has a water slide attached to their baptistry? That sounds like a fun church. I wouldn't mind that. Pastor, this is hard stuff. There's no happiness in this. There's no joy of the Lord in what you're saying. Yes, there is. When we do these things, when we are truly repentant, when we are truly broken over the sin that is breaking things around us, what's it say? He will exalt you. Christ promised us, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Peter reminds us of this. He says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. It doesn't mean you're gonna get the cash that you need. It doesn't mean you're gonna be rich and famous. You're not gonna get that sweet YouTube job where you, know, you just do YouTube videos all day, every day. But it does mean that in eternity, when Christ calls forth his church, when that trumpet sounds, we get to go. We get to be in his presence and worship him. And as we stand in his presence, we fall down before him because as long as we exalt ourselves, we are not exalting God and therefore God will not exalt us. But, but if we repent, if we turn, if we change our minds, thus to change our actions, if we follow Christ and we begin to build his kingdom and not our own, if we have that change of heart, in his time, God lifts us up. The Greek there is the word hypsosai, and it means he will lift us up to a high place. If you're truly repentant, if the conviction of sin has brought you low, rest assured, God will exalt you and bring you higher. If you have submitted yourself to him, if you have truly repented. You see, pride gives a false sense of exaltation, but humility brings the truth. And finally, finally James comes to this. He says, do not slander one another. The Greek word comes from a word meaning to speak evil of one another. To say things that are not only not true, but aimed to hurt or tear down. This is the very basic problem behind everything James has been addressing since the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1 the way we talk about one another, the things we say, the misuse of our tongue to speak evil and to slander, to boast arrogantly. 
It's from our hearts we speak out of envy, out of jealousy, out of selfish desires, and ultimately, ultimately from our pride. The Old Testament warns us about this. It says in Leviticus 19.16, the law of the Old Testament, you shall not go about as a slanderer among your people and you shall not stand up, uh, stand against the life of your neighbor. Why did God tell Israel that? Because it's the beginning of problems among the people. Psalm 50 verse 20 says, you sit and speak against your brother, you slander your own mother's son. The New Testament also warns, 1 Peter 2 says, Therefore, laying aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for pure milk of the word, so that, it, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Paul includes slander in his list of sins of Israel in Romans 1, the things he didn't want to find in the churches in 2 Corinthians 12. Look again here. Look what James says in your Bible. He who slanders a brother or judges his brother slanders the law and judges the law. This is James referring back to that Old Testament, to Leviticus 19.16. He's referring back to that, which Leviticus 19.16 leads into Leviticus 19.18. It says, you shall not take vengeance, you shall not keep your anger against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I seem to remember somebody saying that's the second most important thing we're supposed to do. But if we're slandering one another, we are not doing that. It's not that we're not to judge one another. It's not that we're not to call one another out over sin. We're supposed to do that. Matthew 7 makes that incredibly clear. We're to do it rightly. There's a method for those things. But James is insisting that with that slander comes the wrong kind of judgment. And those who do that are showing contempt, not just for God, but for his law. And then at last in verse 12, simply if a person is placing themselves in God's shoes and judging the law, they're usurping God's place as the one lawgiver and the ultimate judge. God alone gave the law and God alone is the judge of all of us. Revelation 20 tells us that Christ will one day sit upon the great white throne of judgment and he will judge every person throughout all of history at one time. Christ is the judge, the Old Testament tells us about in verses like Psalm 919. Arise, O Yahweh, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. It is Christ and Christ alone that can save. And it's Christ and Christ alone who ultimately will destroy, James tells us. We don't want that weight. I don't want to be the judge, the final judge. That belongs to God. So James concludes with sin in our own heart that we haven't dealt with. Who do we think we are to try and take God's role over others? Matthew 7, 5, Jesus says, first take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is repentance. It's not saying you have to be perfect. He's not saying you have to have it all figured out. But if you're struggling with the same sin, you can't go and help somebody else be better. And you have no right to try and judge them and bring them into repentance if you've not done it yourself. Church, we can never be truly together if we don't overcome thinking of ourselves first, putting ourselves first, our own personal pride. I'm going to go ahead and ask the worship team to come back now. Today, I would ask you, the last few weeks I've asked this, that you ask a hard question. Do I recognize my own pride? 
Do I recognize the place it has in my life? And take the time as we worship, as we close, to pray a bold prayer. To say, Holy Spirit, search me. Show me where I'm falling short. Where is my pride? Tom Rainer tells a story in, in one of his books about a pastor who was ready to give up, ready to quit. This woman in the church confesses to Tom, and she tells this story. She said that she was the one person in the church, every time they do something, it didn't matter if the pastor said up, she said down. If he said, let's paint the wall green, she'd say, let's paint it blue. And she was just that type of person. And one day, she just was going to really let him have it. And she went into the church, and she heard the pastor praying. And in his prayer, he said, Lord, if I'm in the way of this church, if I'm what's hindering, remove me. Kill me or call me somewhere else. And it was in that moment the lady said, I stopped fighting my pastor. I thought it was my job to keep him in check. Instead, I should have been supporting him. I should have been following. But my own pride wouldn't let me do it. I'm not saying be nice to your pastor today. You should, though. should do that. Okay, just for the record. I'm not saying that the pastor has to be a dictator or a tyrant. Because I know I'm not the only one who's prayed that prayer. I know board members have prayed that prayer. I know people who've been in this church for 20, 30 years have prayed that exact prayer. But we have to pray another prayer ourselves this morning, and that is simply, Lord, deal with my pride, lest I hinder your church. I want us to be together. Will you stand as we worship this morning?